Hello, everyone. Junior Church, stand up. Don't move. Just stand up. Okay, just so all of you know, today is a day at the lake, lunch at the lake for the camp. So if you're not going, kids, hey, you might want to ask your parents to go right after service. Uh, there's some food and maybe some games. There is a dunk tank where some people are going to be in it. Not yours truly. Um, I'm doing tours, so that's what I... But so, okay, just think about that. All right, you can four years old to fourth grade can go to junior church. So, we're going through a lot of things through the, the life of David. But what comes to mind when I say the word grace? If you hear somebody say grace, what is thought that pops in your mind? Some people will think of prayer. Would you say grace today for us? Well, this, um, there was a family that visited a church, and there was their first time going to church, and after hearing the message, they really wanted to jump in. They, they wanted to give their whole life to God, and, and so they, they started going to church, and after hearing another message, they decided to invite their neighbors over for a dinner to try and get them all to go to church. And so they've been going to church about three weeks at this time, and they wanted to demonstrate that they're good Christians to their neighbors. And so they turned to their little boy and said, why don't you say grace for us? Say a prayer. And this little six- or five-year-old boy, Johnny, goes, I don't know how to pray. In front of everybody, and so dear, just, you know how to do this. Say what your daddy said this morning. Just do it like that. Okay. So he bowed his head and said, oh, God. As the whole neighbors are here, oh God, help us tonight as we have these awful neighbors coming to dinner. Now that's not grace, is it? Some people don't think of grace like that. Other people, other than prayer, you might think of when you hear the word grace, like a, a ballet dancer. Uh, Casey and, and Austin got to go see um, this dance movement that happened yesterday, and they came back just blown away with the message of all these ladies of the Bible. And how they just showcase the message of God's uh, grace and His love and the people in the Bible through these dance moves. And it was very graceful, but people think that. Some people will say maybe it's about a, a queen. You know how she carries herself with grace. Grace can refer to these kind of things, coordination, elegant movement, or prayer. But that's, that's really not what grace truly is. Spiritually speaking, grace means unmerited favor. That's what grace means, unmerited favor. It means extending a favor to someone who does not deserve it, who has not earned it, and who can never repay it back. We give out grace when we allow a person to cut in the grocery line. We see they have less items than us. They're behind us, but we give them grace. They, we let them in front of us. They didn't do anything to deserve the gesture. They can't pay it back. That's grace. That is the type of grace that we're going to talk about in Scripture. Unmerited favor. Grace that God has given each one of us in Jesus. We are saved by grace. None of us deserve it. We have done nothing to earn it. I want everyone in here to realize we do not deserve salvation. 
We can never repay God for it. It is a gift we do not deserve. God desires that we learn from Him, and in turn, we become like Him. We become grace-filled people. Every once in a while, we witness someone acting gracefully towards someone else, and when we see those things, it's, it's beautiful. As we go through the life of David, our focus is this idea of pursuing Pursuing a quest for a, a godlike heart, for a heart after God's own. And here at St. Joe Church Christ, we want to be known as a church that is after God's own heart, that is seeking, pursuing Him. So we're pursuing this thing. We want to be more and more like God. Today we're going to see David actually live out one of the godly principles of God's grace. In our last sermon about the life of David, we saw David was in a period of peace. His life has settled down, and he was in a thoughtful mood, and at this point, he, he's thinking, I, I live in such luxury, I want to build a temple. Unbeknown to him, this was going to be the pinnacle of his power. It's been about 20 years of turbulent years of, of yeah, 20 turbulent years since he was a young hero of Slayer of Goliath, best friend of King Saul's son, Jonathan. Now he's sitting in his palace wanting to build it, and God says no. And he accepted God's will, and he starts preparing plans so his son can do this. As David spent this peaceful time thinking about his past and all the blessings he received, I think he started thinking back to one of his childhood friends. Now, I grew up first in Wyoming. I was born in Cheyenne, Wyoming, lived in Gillette, Wyoming. That's where God's country is. I'm just going to tell you, it is beautiful out there because there's less people. That's, but you can see so far away, there's mountains, there's tons of stars. You can see it. And while growing up out there, I had a friend named Greg. And Greg was my best friend. He saved me from getting beat up by older kids. I helped him with his homework so he could pass the grades, and we just became best friends. And when we moved to Indiana, I kept thinking about Greg. And every now and then, I see something that makes me remind or remind myself of Greg. I think that's what David's doing here. He's thinking back in this peaceful time. He's preparing things for the temple so his son can build it, and he remembers Jonathan. Jonathan, his best friend who helped him out so much, who protected him. Jonathan, King Saul's son, who died in a battle. And while reflecting on King Saul and Jonathan and the impact they have on his life, I think David must have remembered something. First Samuel chapter 9. One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Samuel's sake? Or for Jonathan's sake. The word translated kindness really isn't translated right in this verse. It carries much more meaning than just being kind. It's more than that. Kindness sounds kind of cheap compared to what David is going to do. David expends, ex, um, intends to be a whole lot more than just kind. He's going to be graceful. This Hebrew word is a favorite word used by the psalmist. This kindness to convey God's characteristic in relationship to us. So as David's going to be kind to Jonathan's heirs, 
This is a reflection of how God is kind to us. This kindness is full of steadfast love. Really, we should translate it as grace. He asked the question, is there anyone left whom I can show grace for Jonathan's sake? You remember that uh, David made a promise back in 1 Samuel 20. By the way, there was a typo. That's 2 Samuel that I just read, not 1 Samuel. Just realize that's a typo, okay? Back in 1 Samuel 20, while David was running from his life from Saul, Jonathan knew that David was destined to the throne. Jonathan knew this, and he proclaimed that you were going to be king. And they had this little exchange, and in 1 Samuel 20, it says, May you treat me with the faithful love as the Lord, the love of the Lord, as long as I live. But if I die, Jonathan says, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan asked of this, and David complies. Basically, he says, David, when you get to the throne, will you show my family grace? The custom at the time is if you take over the monarchy, you kill the rest of that leftover family so they can't usurp your authority, so they can't take over and reclaim the throne in, in honor of their dead father. And he says, don't do that, David. Show us grace. Without hesitation, David agreed to do that, and he makes this binding covenant, a promise, with his friend. A few chapters later, in 1 Samuel 24, David spares Saul's life. If you remember when we talked about that, starting in verse 20, now I realize Saul is saying this, that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when this happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. David not just promised Jonathan, but he promised his enemy, King Saul, I will give grace to your descendants. I will show grace, unmerited favor. Twenty years later, David is now king, and he remembers, is there anyone that I can show grace to? Is there anyone? He didn't say, is there anyone qualified? Is there anyone deserving he simply said, is there anyone? Is there someone? Starting verse 2. David summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness, not my kindness. I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes. One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Macher, son of Amil. I love David's response here. He immediately says, where is he? He doesn't inquire, well, how did he become crippled? I mean, Ziba says, well, yeah, he's Jonathan's son and he's crippled in both feet. Where is he? He wants to know right away, where is the man located? He is ready and expecting to share this grace, because grace isn't picky. Grace just wants to share with people, just wants to pour on people. Grace doesn't look to see if it's deserved. Grace is a gift that is really one-sided. 
take a look at the name of the location. Uh, lo, in Hebrew, means no. So whenever you see the word lo in Hebrew, it means no. And the bar is from the root word meaning pasture or pasture land. So where is Jonathan's son living? Where there is no pasture. It's bad land. Obscure, desolate place in Palestine. This young son of, Saul, of Jonathan, they hid away in no man's land to try and protect him. Now, David may not have been interested in how he was crippled, but I was. So I started looking and trying to figure it out. And you can see it in chapter 4, 2 Samuel 4. When Jonathan's son was five years old, his nurse was taking care of him and heard that Saul and Jonathan were killed. Now, what's the custom? When the kings are killed, the new king comes and destroys the family. And so she, the nurse picked him up and fled to try and protect this young son. In doing so, in her hurry to leave, she either fell on him or she dropped the boy or something happened and he became crippled. And they named him Mephibosheth. Okay, just so we all know, let's all say it. Mephibosheth. Only half of you said it. Okay. So, this story of Mephibosheth, we're going to call him just Seth from now on is a bit emotional now. Just think about this. This nurse who's trying to take charge, trying to protect him, somehow helps cause pain. He's permanently disabled. Now imagine being Mephibosheth, the only remaining son of Jonathan, grandson of King Saul, who is accidentally made cripple and who has been hiding in this desolate no-man's place Ever since, the very last thing you want to hear is the king is summoning you. You don't want to hear that. You don't want an emissary to come say, you have to come before the king. How many of you look forward to an IRS agent coming? This would be worse. Can you imagine Mephibosheth's shock when that very thing happens? He can't run away. He can't live on his own. The king wants to see you. If I was in this place, I'd be thinking, today I die. He's brought to Jerusalem and escorted to the very presence of the king. Verse 5. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Notice he keeps repeating who he is, and that's important because they want to make sure we know who this guy is. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Seth replied, I am your servant. Here comes some of the most powerful words in all Scripture. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness. Be kindness to you because... Of my promise to your father, Jonathan, I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show, show such kindness to a dead dog like me? What good is a dead dog? It's worthless. 
And that's what he's saying here. He comes expecting to meet his doom, and he is greeted with the exact opposite. Can you imagine what he's been thinking or feeling? Are you Mephibosheth? Uh, Yes, I am your servant. And then he says those most powerful words, do not be afraid. It's a common phrase in the biblical narrative. Many times you'll find that phrase, do not be afraid. When the, the angels come and they come into the presence of people, I have great news for you. Here it's on the lips of David. This phrase, do not be afraid, was also in the lips of Jesus who regularly brought frightened and bewildered men and women into the very presence of God. This phrase is so frequent because there is so much to fear in this life. We, we constantly meet up with people who are more powerful than us, circumstances that seem to control us and dominate over us. And so many times don't we just want to hear those words from the one who can give us true kindness. Mephibosheth has every reason to be deathly afraid of David. He has no reason to think that David is going to give him kindness, but instead kill him. He's the last line in Saul's family. He's a potential rival. And David basically says, don't be afraid. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to show you grace. All because of the promise between your father, David, and myself. Because of that promise, I'm going to give you a place of honor that you've never had before. In fact, you're going to become a member of my own family. You're going to eat regularly at my table. He went from living in no man's land, crippled, to becoming one of the royal family. That's amazing grace. David then assigns Saul's old servant, Ziba, the responsibility of farming the land for Mephibosheth. This crippled man who's been in hiding his whole life has his life turned completely around. Not only is he a part of the royal family again, but David gives him, not Jonathan's, but King Saul's former land. Now he has his own income. Now he has his own home. This is a fantastic story of grace. The story of David and Mephibosheth is not the greatest story of grace you can find in the Bible, though. It is a great example, but it's not the greatest one. The greatest can be found in John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Many of you know this verse. But do you know what it's truly saying? This is saying, from God, let me show you kindness. Let me show you grace. It is the definition of grace. God is basically saying, I want to give you eternity in heaven. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. And you can't pay Him back for it. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. Let's just stop right there. Everyone in this room, every one of us, we've sinned. We fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace, His kindness, 
freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. The story of Mephibosheth and David is a true story. It really happened. We need to understand that these events in the Old Testament, they're real, they're true. You and I, we are a lot like Mephibosheth. You and I, whether we acknowledge it or not, are very similar to him. We are a lot like Mephibosheth. I wasn't born in a palace whisked away from my safety and hurt. I don't think any of you were, but we are all crippled by a fall. We are crippled by a fall. Just like Mephibosheth, every human is crippled because of the fall of Adam and Eve, because of sin. We have a tendency to sin. And because of that, we face the consequences, and it hinders our life. We are crippled when it comes to pleasing God on our own. We can't. But there's good news. Like Mephibosheth, we are pursued by the king. David sought out after Mephibosheth. He didn't, Mephibosheth didn't say, hey, David, remember, remember your promise. The king searched him out. Thankfully for Mephibosheth, King David sought out him for good and not evil, which is just an example of what Jesus did for us. He came into the world seeking those who were not seeking him. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Not those who are seeking God, those who are lost. Do you know most people who are lost spiritually don't realize it? They're oblivious to it. They don't realize they're blindly unconscious to the fact that they've sinned against God. They don't know the first step in coming back to Christ to realize that they are sinners. They are lost and they need to be found, which is why Jesus came to get them, to show them. Like Mephibosheth, who was crippled by a fall, pursued by a king, we have been found in a far-off land, in a desolate place. Mephibosheth's land that he lived in, it was no pasture, nothing good. We are in a desperate place compared to the glory of God. How many of you, if you had the choice, would rather live here on earth than in heaven? Good. That's a good answer. Because this is a desolate place compared to heaven. And God pursued us and finds us in this far-off land. Our sin drove us from the presence of the King of the universe, yet Jesus took the initiative to seek out and find us. Just like Jesus told of the parable of the 99 sheep, what did He do with the 99? He left them in safety so He could go seek and save the one to give them kindness. Our far-off country of sin makes us very dirty and ugly in God's sight. Like Mephibosheth, we are saved because of another person, not because of us. This is a key here. David loved Mephibosheth from the very beginning, not because he'd ever met him, but because of whose son he was. Not for anything Mephibosheth had done or deserved, David had love for Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. And you and I are just like Mephibosheth here. 
God loves every one of you. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's love. There's nothing in my life that I've ever done for God to say, oh yeah, now you're good enough. I don't deserve it. And yet, because of Jesus, God gives me that love. We can't earn His love. We already have it. God's love was freely given, given to us through the name of Jesus. Ephesians 1 says, God decided in advance. That means before we even knew about it. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Christ Jesus. This is what He, God, wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace, kindness, that He has poured out on us who belong to um, who belong to His dear Son. You and I are saved because of Jesus. Because of the relationship be- between the King, God, and His Son, the universe, and the Savior, we have salvation, not because of us. Mephibosheth was able to move into the King's royal home because of John. Now, if all that happened to Mephibosheth can be related to us, that means we can have the same happy ending. I hate when I, I got to do a sermon and the, the story turns right at the end and it, it's kind of sad and we got to talk about here. It's like, don't let this happen to you. But look here, Mephibosheth had a great ending. He was restored to the king's table. You and I, just like Mephibosheth, can be restored to the king's table. He went from being a beggar in no man's land, crippled by a fall, brought in after being pursued by the king, and now he's eating at the palace, eating with the king. How many of you like buffets? You think I do? We like, don't you love seeing that big spread of food? There was a, a dinner party we went to at, at Great Lakes during their Christmas time. And it, it was this huge meal. They brought out a roasted boar. It was awesome. Had an apple in his mouth and everything. Some of you are like, ew, no. It was good. We had all this choice food. Imagine eating scraps in no man's land and then being brought to the king's table. What do you think they serve at the king's table? Whatever he wants. If he wants prime rib, he's going to get it. Now, he wouldn't have had pork back then, unfortunately. Have you ever had... um, Well, let's go to the scripture. In Luke 14, 15, Jesus talks about heaven. When one of these at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. In the feast in the kingdom of God. How many of you ever been to one of those dinners where they have those little name tag tents at the tables? You know, usually they're at weddings or things like that, okay? What does that name tag mean? It's your spot. Can anybody else sit there? Well, they can, but they're going to move. That's my spot. If your name is there, 
That's your table. That's your seat. That is designed for you. That means it was planned out. It was thought about in advance. You were thought about and cared about to have your name put on this table. So much so that they're advertising, this is the seat. This is yours. And Jesus has a banquet at the royal king of the universe's home. There's a name tag at every place setting that he has written with his own blood and said, this is yours. Now, the one who sets the table, they have the authority to say no one else but this person. The table has been prepared. There's a name tag on it. We've been invited. So the question is, how will you respond to the invitation? How would you respond to the invitation to join and to come be a part of the king's family? Mephibosheth, when he gets this, he doesn't say, I'm good. I'll go back to no man's land, eat the scraps, and beg. He moves right in. He enjoys the food. He enjoys the comfort of it. And so how will we we respond to this invitation? Will we accept this gracious gift of God's salvation, this kindness? Real quick, if you're not a Christian, what are you waiting for? Because there's no better offer than an invitation from the king himself. There will be no better offer. Are you waiting until you're worthy? Until you fix some things in your life? None of us will ever be worthy of God's grace. You cannot do anything to fix yourself to be invited. So why not just say, I'll take it. Like Mephibosheth did, why not just move in? Say, okay. And let God handle the details of everything else. Once we've received God's grace, then the question comes, for those who have already become in the king's family, will you extend that grace to others? That's where it gets a little awkward. Just, just for a moment, think about this. You are one of King David's family. And now Mephibosheth is going to sit by me? Then his grandpa try to kill you? You're giving him all that land back? That could have been mine. Or do you look at the king and say, you're so kind. You're so full of grace that you give people who don't deserve it an equal seating. King David knew that God had been gracious to him. He went from the pasture to the palace. And David was determined to pass that grace on to others. How about us? Do we receive God's grace and then refuse to give it to someone else because I just don't like them? You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they have said. Jesus told a powerful story about those in faith. Listen to it. It's in Matthew 18. Jesus said, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Notice a theme here. The king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, 
A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay it, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to pay off the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, real quick, 10,000 bags of gold. That sum in, in the Greek here really means that it's not possible to pay that much off. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Grace. That's what that is. Grace. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Not ten thousand bags of gold. A hundred coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This, Jesus concludes, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's great to hear what happened to Mephibosheth. It's great. I love that idea. But notice how we are expected according to this. God is a God of grace. Therefore, God's children must become a people of grace. We must be a people of kindness. Paul declared truth when he said, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, imitate God. And God is a God of grace. Uh, go to that next scripture. I jumped. I wrote it in here twice. Live a life full with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, pleasing aroma. He imitated this. Jesus imitated this. And Paul is saying, you have to imitate him. Show this. Be kind and gracious to one another. How many of you ever get irritated with somebody in your family? <laughs> Some of you actually start looking at each other. What does Scripture say? Give them grace. My mom had tons of grace. That's why I'm still alive. That's why I still have two brothers that are still alive. Grace. Now, if we can irritate and offend people within our own family, how much more can it even happen within the church family? And what are we supposed to do? Be people of grace. Not because you deserve it, but because He gave it. And therefore, I will give it. And you will give it. Be kind and gracious to each other. Imitate God in this. There are people in this room, there are people in every church who are holding on to conflicts, they're holding on to bitterness, they're holding on to pain and trials, troubles. 
They are choosing to live in no man's land. They're choosing to cling to the crippled nature of this world instead of moving from there into the king's table. And a lot of them are people who claim to be part of God's family. You know what? Christians can be very bitter. Christians can really choose to be very ungracious. We can choose to be a lot like Satan. Not like God our Father. We are called to forgive each other as we have been forgiven. That, that servant should have forgiven his friend for a hundred coins. Instead, he acted like Satan. We are called to forgive others as we have been forgiven. How many of you have been forgiven by Christ? We need to see more hands than that. And your debt... Remember this, when you sinned, it is a debt to God. And He forgave it. He took it away from you because you could never pay it off. He gave it to His Son to pay it off and gave you a seat at the King's table. That is grace. God's love and forgiveness of us because of His grace, His kindness. And because of that, shouldn't we want to... Share that grace with others. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with His blood, with the blood of His Son, and forgave our sins. Notice grace is why He forgives us. He has lavished His kindness on us. I love that word. He lavished His kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God wants to lavish His grace upon you. That doesn't mean He gives you just enough. That means He pours out so much on you that it spills out and it is intended to affect and impact other people around you. That is what grace is supposed to do. It's supposed to hit us with such force that it knocks us off our feet. And then we can't help but tell you, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about the grace. I am a sinner, but look what God has done. When we understand that grace. Can you see Mephibosheth going, you know, yesterday I ate Spam. Today it's prime rib. Yesterday it was four-day-old goulash. Today it's fresh. Can't you? Taste the grace that God wants to give you. That's what David did to Mephibosheth. He tasted that grace that God had given him and he wanted to pour it out onto others in church. We need to do the same. We need to do the same. That's what God does to us and that's what we must do to others. We're going to come to a time, we're going to close in prayer here, but I, I want to offer again. If you've never made a decision for Christ... If you've never accepted that you do have a seat, that God is waiting to place your name at the table, will you accept it today? Will you come and say, I know I don't deserve it. But thank you for the gift. And for those who already have that seat, some of us need to forgive. We need to offer forgiveness. They don't deserve it, but neither do we. Maybe we need to go and say, I'm sorry, too. 
give grace. We'll start acting like people who are coming to the banquet seat of heaven. If you want to have a time where we can pray with you, we're going to have the back prayer room ready again. If you'd like to talk about some things or, or maybe go to the throne room with God with us and we will come to the mercy seat, the grace-filled throne, and see how God can impact us. Will you do that? Let's stand and let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that like Mephibosheth, we can come before you broken, desolate, and yet you still give us a seat with your son. That you treat us like heirs. That you are so full of kindness. You are so full of grace. Forgive us when we don't imitate that. God, challenge us. Help us to be a people, a church full of grace. And as we come back to worship you, as we come back to lift up your name, remind us again of how powerful you are and how truly holy you are. And in Jesus we all pray. Amen.